Hey you damn guys, just a little bit of a content warning on this episode. We're going to be talking about some issues that revolve around sexual violence and organizations that help this. And so I just want to make sure you guys are ready for that. Sometimes that can be a little unsettling to just, that comes out of nowhere. So we want to make sure that you're like, hey, I'm in a place where we can talk about organizations that are helping. Okay, bye. Reading Hellboy comics and talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. I'm Danielle. Hey, everybody, this is an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics, and every week we interact with our listeners, and now Danielle's <laughs> going to tell you all about it. I always laugh when I cut over to you. This is so funny. It gets... It's my fault. It's my fault for... <laughs> Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna read a book and then we're gonna talk about it and then you're gonna listen to what we were talking about and you're gonna talk about it. But you can talk about it at us uh, for friendship if you get on the, the various social medias or if you don't like that you do an email. That's a hey damn guys. Say hey damn guys. Send us an email. Then we're gonna talk about what you talked about when you were talking about us talking about what we were reading. And we're also when we talk about what we were reading, we're gonna tell you what to read next time and you're gonna read it. And that's kind of like homework, except it's fun. And then we talk about it, and that's friendship. And we just keep doing that. It's it's a book club. Yeah, it's a thank book. you it's so a, much. It's a book club. Awesome. Yeah. We got an email from Podbean this week that said we've had 50,000 downloads. Okay. That's pretty oh, cool. Wow. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was nice. Nice little milestone there. So thank you for all of our listeners. And I wanted to give a shout out to... It's just to... Matt Strackbine downloading it 50,000 times. <laughs> Aww, Every single one. I miss Matt. That's 50,000 book club members. 50,000 friendships. Nice. It's not. It's not. And I wanted to uh, give a shout oh, out to... Oh, like uh, 500. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay. I wanted to give a shout out to Ross Radke. Ross Radke. Uh, and we saw the commissions. Yeah, we finally saw the great. sketch cards oh. that he contributed Man, they look really good. to our fundraiser. So those were so awesome. Super there was uh, Those are amazing. Yeah. I really loved the lobster one. And then the Hellboy in the lobster yeah. suit was so good. Oh, was uh, man. Nimue, right? Yeah. Oh, and then, and then the Nimue one was good, too. Yeah. yeah those oh. were really cool. So thank you again, Ross, for contributing those. Ryan Rollinson said, the art of justice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. Yes. I like that. Awesome. And now it's time for me to say a thing. Oh. Our fundraiser benefiting the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is over, and all the prizes have been sent. But like I said earlier, our work is far from over. And with all the revelations that have been coming out in the comics industry as of late, I wanted to use this platform to support another worthy cause. So we're going to be doing another fundraiser comic giveaway for you guys, and we're going to be supporting Rain. This is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. It's the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Rain created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline in partnership with more than a thousand local sexual assault service providers across the country and operates the DOD Safe Helpline for the Department of Defense. Rain also carries out programs to prevent sexual violence, help survivors, and ensure that perpetrators are brought to justice. So I asked John when he was like, hey, we should make this fundraiser for Rain." I was like, I don't know. That's a big, I don't even know what that organization really does. How do we really know? And what if it's one of those things where most of the money is just going towards, you know, to line the pockets of CEOs and it's like the rest of it is just awareness raising or something yeah, yeah. fucking stupid and so i was like so how do we know this is a thing and he did a ton of research he even showed me he's like look i looked up this i looked up that 
and he yeah. was he was doing all this research so you know i think that this is yeah thanks for mentioning that i went to charitynavigator.org this is a website where they kind of vet all the different charities rain has earned a guide star platinum seal of transparency because they provide all their tax documents to show where all their money goes 95 cents of every dollar goes to their programs and services and of that 95 percent 68 percent goes directly to helping survivors 27 percent to educating the public and five percent for improving public policy i'm uh i'm actually very familiar with rain okay. um uh, I know that they do a lot of great work and all that, um, and so this is a wonderful um, organization to be uh, raising money for, and they do do a lot of great work. That's great. So, no, and uh, so the only reason yeah. for my comments was because with big organizations like that, with quote-unquote nonprofits, yeah. it's usually not the case. If it's something that big, it's usually not a nonprofit. It's very much profiting like a, a couple of really wealthy people. What are you actually doing to help right. people you can't really tell, so I'm glad that y'all are doing this research and stuff. So that's yeah, we want to really make good. sure that yeah. we're getting the biggest bang for our yeah, buck awesome. with our donations. Yeah, you really want to help, like you want to do something. Yeah. But it's like how do you know what you're if you you know? So that's good. I actually first became aware of the uh, the organization because uh, Tori Amos was a spokesperson back in the '90s. Okay, and so. That's how I kind of became aware of who they were. I became aware of, of the organization, do. yeah. And, like, and follow what they do uh, throughout the years. And I, I, I support them and I think they do good work. Sure. No, I mean, I became aware of the organization when I was like in my 20s or something, early 20s. But like I never really knew like what they did. It just seemed to me like another big faceless. But yeah, no, it seems good. So that's awesome. That's really good news. And I want to shout out two special book club members. Shout out to Wes Maddice. Hey, Wes Maddice. Book club member. Wes and I are teaming up to donate a full set of the Baltimore Omnibuses. Wes donated Omnibus 2, which has a new story in it. And so I went out and got Volume 1. And so with the two of us, a winner will get a full set of these Baltimore Omnibuses. These are really awesome. I don't even have these (laughs) in my collection. So these are really great books. I'm also throwing in three more signed issues. These issues were signed personally by Mignola. I had them signed by him when I met him. We have a Dark Horse Presents 90 and a Dark Horse Presents 91. These are two separate prizes. And these are some very early Hellboy appearances. They're actually part of the Wolves of St. August when it was divided up into those black and white chapters. I also have the very first Hellboy Christmas special, which has a great Gary Gianni cover, also signed by Mignola. So those are all three separate prizes that are going into the pile. And then we got a shout out, Christopher Egan. Christopher Egan. Book club member. Yeah. Christopher Egan is donating The Visitor issues one through five. Oh, fun. So we just oh, read wow. those. Yeah. So that's going to be one prize. So you'll get all five issues of The Visitor. He's also donating Rise of the Black Flame issues one through hey. five. I don't even have those issues wow, either. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you'll get a full set of those stories um, as one prize. He also has a Hellboy Being Human one-shot and Legends of the Dark Knight number 62, which has an epic Mignola cover, and it's Mignola's rendition of the Nightfall Batman in the armor, in the 90s armor. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. So thank you so much, Wes Maddice and Christopher Egan. And look, I didn't ask either of these guys to donate anything. They hit me up and they said, hey, when we were doing the last fundraiser and when I mentioned that I wanted to do something else, they hit me up and said, hey, I want to throw some stuff in the pile. And I said, look, you know, if if you donate this stuff, you're going to have to ship it out. 
Yeah. And they were both totally game for it. So I'm not asking for anyone to do this. I don't expect any other book club members to be giving away your stuff. But please support the fundraiser and throw a couple dollars at it. Just like um, on the last fundraiser, every dollar that you donate will be one raffle ticket or one giveaway ticket. And then I'll select winners at random. That's that's really cool. That's so yeah. Nice. Made me feel good that Friendship. those guys reached out. So yeah. thank you so much, Wes and Christopher. This this awesome. uh, thing, Thank you. Yeah, this thing that we're doing has put us into contact with so many really kind-hearted yeah. people. That's, that's really nice. All right, and now we're going to go on to our listener feedback section. A lot of feedback from The Visitor by Drew Campbell. Drew Campbell. Book club member. That's right. We were talking about Chaz Young, that book Michael was looking for for Ruby. It was written by Chaz Young, and we were trying to figure out if that was a reference to anything. Drew Campbell found Charles Young, who was a third African-American graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and the first black man to achieve the rank of colonel in the U.S. Army, among a number of other achievements. The shame about what happened to the author line could refer to his forced retirement just before the U.S. entered World War I due to the likelihood that he would have been promoted to brigadier general and thus would have outranked many white officers. So that's messed up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I wonder if that's what that reference is for. Thank you, Drew Campbell, for doing that research. Thank you. I mean, that, that does sound like a plausible explanation for it. Yeah. And there were those themes, you know, in the in the story. So that kind of goes along with that. Yeah. He also said, Michael's flashback to what happened to his people got me thinking. Everything we know about the secret history of the Mignolaverse is very Earth-centric. With the Ogdrujahad and the Ogdruham having been created there, I know some of the Ogdruham were banished into space, and that could be the reason why they were able to cause destruction on the aliens' homeworld. But what if there's more to the history than we know? Maybe the Watchers created the Ogdrujahad somewhere else, and Earth is just one of the places that their influence has reached. Perhaps the man from the island, having been a priest in the 1500s and misinterpreted the gold tablets and assumed that the events it described happened on Earth. Or maybe even the original writers of the gold tablets were mistaken about some of the details of what happened. If hell is its own dimension, or a part of the spiritual realm, I don't see any reason it should have any special connection to Earth. Hell could potentially have access to any world in the universe, so Hellboy's father could have gotten Anum's right hand from wherever it was located, which could have been somewhere other than Earth. Maybe even the visitor's homeworld. There's a panel showing the alien talking to what looks like primitive humans. Maybe the aliens are actually what we always thought of as the Hyperboreans. And they spread their knowledge to other sentient beings to other planets before ascending into space on their ship. I'm probably wrong about all this, but it's interesting to think about. And uh, and uh, Jerry Turnbull said, Don't forget we have parallel dimensions and views of multiple Earths. Remember when Johan, yeah. um, at the yeah. end of Hell on Earth, we also tapped into that. So he, Drew Campbell said, yeah, once I started going down that thought path, I realized I wasn't going to have time to completely wrap my brain around all the possibilities and implications while I'm at work. <laughs> yeah, I love theorizing about all these different things. So, yeah, you can definitely go down a rabbit hole with that. Yeah, no, I, I remember I read that comment the other day and I was just like, whoa, 
oh shit and so i started thinking about it and it's like haven't we um like seen the ruins of uh hyperborea um in one of the comics i it, when back? when abe went down into the uh at the end of the abe sapien series he went down to where he originally found that numb bisque and it was like it turned into the hyperborean mm. ruins or whatever remember he met shanshan there and they were underwater but then all of a sudden they weren't underwater Hi- hyperborean yeah. <laughs> yes hyperboreans thank you yeah we're saying it wrong no i'm just no, pronunciation I'm corners it, I'm, back no, 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 no i'm, I'm just, saying it the way i want to say no it. I'm, I'm kidding i'm kidding it's a joke. No, no no thank you for that correction i'm being i'm being goofy i'm having a laugh Aww. i'm just joshing you we also had some feedback on the stories from an assortment of horrors that we read last week. We were talking about the illustrations. Ryan Yule said, I think the illustrations in the book are done with pencil and ink wash. And he has another piece by Mignola that's kind of done in the same style. Oh, cool. And he's like, so, you know, maybe that's... And he would know because he's got so much of the original right. art, right? <laughs> he really does. Jerry Turnbull said, the promised smile... Jerry Turnbull. Book club member. The promised smile has to take place somewhere between the events of the Wolves of St. August in 94 and Conqueror Worm in 2000. Remember, we're trying to place yeah. where that takes it, where, where that mission is. And so, yeah, I think that makes sense because the Wolves of St. August is a Hellboy Kate adventure. And then Kate was kind of featured in that story, too. So, yeah, totally. I think that it could fall somewhere in those years. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense, too. I, and I knew that Jerry, Jerry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ross Radke said Ross Radke. Book club member. I read the first story and I'm happy to report that my mental image of Hellboy turns out to be a Mignola drawing brought to life and not Ron Perlman in makeup. Curious how other people picture him in their mind's eye while reading. I didn't think about that. What what did you picture when you were reading? Did you picture the comic Hellboy? Did you picture the live action Hellboy? I pictured it as an animated yeah, I, I have to admit, I kind of pictured an animated, almost uh, version of it, but like, I don't know. It People was... shit on animation, but it's great. Yeah, so. well, it, it almost reminded me of the, I don't know if everyone's played Injustice, but Hellboy is a downloadable character in that game. Oh. And um, I kind of pictured that version okay. of Hellboy, which is very akin to the comic version as well. What about you, Aubrey? I definitely pictured kind of more of a comic type version i wouldn't say it's you know specifically mignola's version but it could also uh it's also part of some you know for grado it's and all the other artists who who've drawn hellboy kind of makes this amalgamation of him in my head yeah uh so much so like you know the the ron perlman version and even the david harbour version while they think they're both great looking versions they don't really fit the version in my head anymore Mm. because you know hellboy's got that wide mouth yeah you know Whereas in, in the movies, he's got the more human mouth. And right. so I always picture him with that big mouth and the horn. Yeah, so I always picture him kind of more of a comic version. Yeah, now that you mention it, I think that Injustice one looks more like a Fregredo Hellboy. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like I like when you're talking about the style of it because in my head, like, yeah, there was kind of a Mignola-esque quality to the animation style, but obviously it was going to be much different. So I was kind of blending that with maybe like the uh, 90s Batman and then kind of pulling from various like like animated shows I had seen. And like there was a lot of good uh, fighting sequences in um, Avatar The Last Airbender. And there was a lot of... So just pulling from different like places where you obviously want it to be really dark and sinister but you yeah. also want this element to it so yeah i like uh, i like that you and i both kind of had a, a like you're kind of picturing it as a uh, an illustrated style and i'm kind of picturing it as like an animated style and john's over here like it's almost a cg 
yeah. thing. So that's interesting that we all kind of went for something that was illustrated rather than live action. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. Great question from Ross. He also said, my initial reaction to the first person narrative and the reference to the karate was the same as Danielle. <laughs> It felt like self-insert fan fiction, but as it progressed, it made a certain level of sense to take the perspective of a new character. Yeah, clearly there's a lot of skill in this person's writing ability. Like the like we we're talking about like the lore and the yeah. this and then that. There's so much there that was good that I I I hated to, you know, harp on anything that sounded like right. I was trying to give negative any kind of criticism or whatever, but yeah, that part kind of got me a little bit, but it's all it's all right. The more I thought about it, it's just like, you know, I guess like when I initially started the story, it took a little bit to get in because of the first person. It was a little narrative. jarring, yeah. But uh, once it kind of started flowing, I was I was riding it, riding the wave. Yeah. <laughs> he said the authors will never be able to replicate the feel of Mignola's unique voice. Even in the canon comics, other writers and artists occasionally struggle. So telling the story from a perspective of a new agent helps mask the perspective of the new, to me, author. I do think the depiction of Hellboy was actually solid. It hit the right tone. It was easy to imagine Mignola's Hellboy delivering those lines and jumping into action. The rest of the story felt like the films to me. The new agent point of view and the monsters felt very del Toro. Just started reading the second story, so we didn't talk about the second story, and he said it's a first-person narration of Hellboy from Hellboy's point of view, and he said he didn't like that. But he said it had a good scene where Hellboy's good with a baby. Oh, okay. Did right you on. read any of the other stories, Aubrey? You said you were thinking about doing that. I started the second one as I was driving somewhere, but I didn't have enough time to really listen to it, and I haven't gotten back to it. Okay. Yeah, the, the first person thing kind of threw me off, and then also it was just like, <laughs> I would be, you know, going along into the story, oh, this is so cool, this is so cool. And then all of a sudden it would be like, I picked up my very specific type of bow staff and did this with it. It was a really specific, hard to execute karate move, but I did it really good. And I was like, all right, I don't, that's, a, that's, a, that's enough of that. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about the canon or not, you know, why are, see, why are these stories right, right. considered canon and other stories Wait, aren't? They talked about, you talked about what? Canon or not. <laughs> Mark Tweedell said. Mark Tweedell. Mark Tweedell, book club member. That's right. He said, regarding the pro stories and what makes them canon or not, I had a discussion with Mignola about this one. So oh, okay. straight from the source. Hey, the reason why most of them aren't canon is because Mignola didn't want to be locked into something that someone else had written. He didn't want the writers to feel locked into anything that he's written either. It's not really a question of canon or not, but more these two stories are canon and the rest of them could be canon. Nothing stopping Mignola from writing a comic tomorrow that canonizes one of the shorts. All right. And Mark really liked The Other Side of Summer. He said he was glad that we loved it too. Chris Robertson introduced Ginny, a character that he's planning to have in the comics someday. The little girl. Oh, yeah. awesome. And he said, which reminds me, I can't wait for 1957. So is that a scoop, Mark Tweedo? Are I, you telling us that Ginny's going to be I, in a 1957 yeah. series? Hmm. Mm. He said also a detail that a you scoop. might... I like that you're talking to like a, like a 50s reporter. Yeah. What's the hot <laughs> scoop? He also threw out another detail that I totally missed. I was kicking myself for not catching this. So Ginny mentions the Sarah Jewell novel, The Mystery of the Sultan's Crown, where Sarah hunts a manticore in a harem. Okay, so in Rise of the Black Flame, that comic book, Sarah Jewell's recounting all her adventures, and there's a panel of her fighting a manticore in a harem. Oh, okay. Yeah, awesome. it's actually in the comic. So yeah, that was so cool. Thanks for that, Mark. I wanted to talk about this too, so... 
Mark shared on Mike Mignola's Art on Facebook. If you follow that page, you know, that's a great page. And there's a lot of good people on there. Mark shared some concept work by Tanchi Zanyich for a story that was in development back in 2017 called Lobster Johnson, Cry of the Meteor. I don't know if this is completely shelved at this point, but if it is, I'm sure hope a future trade includes the concept work and the script for this. I always love seeing process stuff like that. And so Mark shared that picture on Mike Mignola's art, and then Mignola commented. Okay. And he said, I would love to see the. I, for one, would love to see this too. <laughs> nice. So is that oh, another shit, scoop? That's is awesome. that is I mean, if Mignola wants to see it too... Then that might have just been an offhanded comment, like, "Oh yeah." Is that another cool. scoop, though? I don't. I Lobster mean, Johnson, Cry of the Meteor, uh, coming out soon. <laughs> hopefully, fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> coming out sometime between now and the end of time. There you go. <laughs> Maybe we had some controversial talk from Uh-oh. Nathaniel Green. Nathaniel Green, my uh. controversial book club member. <laughs> my latest, <laughs> <laughs> my latest shit posting to the Great Pickle Debate side <laughs> podcast, along with the Bean Conspiracy. Uh. Pickles on pizza, and he shared a pizza, and it was a ch- it was like a cheese pizza, but it had pickles as the topping. It's okay, sure. Okay, so I'm not gonna eat that- it, but <laughs> knock yourself out. It's fine. I saw that, and I'm like, you know, people put all kinds of shit on pizza. I, I would try it probably, but my main problem with that is I don't like round pizzas cut into square. I don't know why. Oh, it was I'm cut into. Oh, was it cut? <laughs> I didn't even see the that thing. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> That was the problem that Aubrey had it's with fine. it. Was that it was. <laughs> I would totally. I don't know eat why. That. I I, would totally I don't know why, that. but it bothers the crap out of me. I guess I just don't want a spoonful of random food in my mouth all at once because I care what things taste like. Uh-huh. But if you don't care what things taste like, knock yourself <laughs> out. That's fine. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I like to have you know a combination of different flavors to see if they go together. If they don't, then I won't eat it again. If sure, they do, I'll sure. eat the shit out of it. Uh huh. No, that's fine. I uh, respect that. I will not be eating that particular uh, pizza combination. I, yeah, I I would definitely try that. I was watching um I was watching this YouTube video the other day. I'm gonna get on a sidetrack here. They were talking about it was really funny. My rich. It was really funny. They were talking about comic book characters and the foods they like oh, okay there's like an ongoing theme of like different comic book characters like hellboy like... with the pancakes and all that yeah okay. and I, well i was trying to think of um foods that have been mentioned in the series we know that hellboy obviously like pan sure. likes pancakes but one of my and favorite hot noodles and hot noodles one of my favorite lines is paprika chicken baby oh uh, yeah yeah oh, so yeah. we know that hellboy likes that. that too when he's in romania so i was trying to think if there's any other food references oh the brownies daimio takes the brownie oh yeah in BPRD or whatever. They're uh, in the cafeteria a lot. We'd have to go back to some of those scenes to see yeah. what they're eating. Like, I don't know what they're eating. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I like thinking about that. So Let us know if there are any other food references in the well, Mignolaverse uh, books. Johan was referencing like, oh, there was a good schnitzel or something like that over here in this yeah, area or something. something Am like I that. making that up completely? I could be completely making that yeah, up. Yeah, I don't know. Or I could be confusing that with another piece of media. That's That happens to me a lot. I was just trying to remember, like, when we when they were in the old BPRD headquarters, you know, I remember yeah. there's a scene in the cafeteria where somebody had a burger, another person had, like, a lobster or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. you're right. Yeah, they're eating lobster or something oh, like that. Weird. Roger and Liz are eating lobster at one point or right. something. Yeah. All right. And now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. This week we're discussing Crimson Lotus. This is a five-issue miniseries that was published in November 2018 to March 2019. Today, we're going to be discussing the first two issues. It was written by John Arcudi. So we know that John Arcudi left the books 
after BPRD Hell on Earth, but apparently he wrote this before he left. In the trade paperback version here, I thought it was interesting, it says Crimson Lotus was created by Arcudi and Guy Davis. So they have credit on that character. This book is illustrated by Mindy Lee. Mindy Lee is a concept and comic book artist from Los Angeles, California. She has had an extensive and varied career in the entertainment industry, working first for video game companies, High Moon Studios, Carbine Studios, Pandemic Studios, and Amazon Game Studios. Lee also worked in animation for Warner Brothers Animation, Alation Studios, and Six Point Harness. She has most recently worked for Dark Horse Comics as the co-creator and artist of Bounty, and this book, The Crimson Lotus. The colors are by Michelle Madsen. And so we got some great color work from Madsen in the Hellboy Weird Tales. She's colored a lot of comics for Dark Horse. Letters by Clem Robbins and edited by Katie O'Brien. I don't know if we've discussed Katie O'Brien, but she became editor of the Hellboy books in 2018. And the covers on these books are by the great Tanchi Zanich, who we all enjoyed on the Lobster Johnson stories. Yeah, I love Tanchi Zanich's covers. I mean, they I would like to see him do movie posters, to be honest with you, because I'm tired of these, like, movie posters we see these nowadays yeah Um, you're right like kind of in the vein of those old school posters yeah i would love that uh but the art by mindy lee i i'm not sure if i've run into her work before but i really enjoyed the art in this story um so that was exciting yeah you really see that kind of video game concept artist type of feel and warner brothers animation you know you can definitely see that she's got that background because The images really do kind of move and they have that kind of stylistic component and it just makes it really enjoyable to look at these pages. I do like this cover of the trade paperback version where it's got the two characters kind of imposed over each other and then we see the Crimson Lotus in the background. I think that's a really cool design. Like you said, Aubrey, Tanchi Zanich always does a great job with the covers on these. And um, And then there's the chapter one cover. Okay, so this cover is amazing. It's got like uh, young Crimson Lotus in the front in kind of a red silhouette with a Rasputin behind her and a dark silhouette with a red skull behind it. But I mean, this is such a striking image. Like, had I been, had I seen this cover in the store, I would have been like, ooh, what is this? Yeah, yeah. what is this? So we open in 1904, early morning, February 9th, on the Maishan Island in the Yellow Sea. I couldn't find a reference to the Maishan Island, but the Yellow Sea is a marginal sea of the Western Pacific Ocean located between mainland China and the Korean Peninsula. And it's called the Yellow Sea. It's kind of like um, one of the four seas that are named after colors. <clears throat> There's the Red Sea, the Black Sea, the White Sea, and then this is yellow, the Yellow Sea because... The sands of the Gobi Desert turn the water yellow. Ah. Yeah, I had to immediately look that up. Yeah, you were like, the yellow, hmm. Why is, why is it uh, But there's it? a reason, because it turns reason. it the yellow, literally the color yellow. Yeah. This is a I thing had- that happens. It's a na- natural <laughs> thing that happens. Geological right. thing, so it's fine. I, I've never looked at it to see why it was called the Yellow Sea, but I do hear a lot about the Yellow Sea and uh, regional strifes in that area. Mm. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of what we see here. This little girl standing on the shore, and she's watching a ship battle in the distance. And this woman comes up, I guess maybe this is her mother, and she calls her Mirioku. And she tells her that those aren't fireworks. People are being hurt, and it's not for a little girl to see. And she tells her to come along. And you better not have nightmares. I thought that was a weird line for her to say. You better not have nightmares because of this. I was like, okay, 
I guess I mean, maybe she's prone to nightmares or something. Yeah, or either that or like her mom was like so mad that she went out and looked at all that stuff that right. she's. I I don't know. Oh. Maybe it's not so much like she's mad at the kid for possi- the possibility of having nightmares. It's maybe she's like just worried that she's going right. to have nightmares okay. kind of a yeah. thing. Like, oh, better not have nightmares about this. I don't know. I that wanted to give the mom laugh, the benefit yeah. of the doubt. Yeah, it's the but the the exasperation of first of all raising a kid and then second of all raising a kid during like wartime. Sure, sure. You know this. I don't know. It's just an interesting. Like you said, it's it's kind of a funny line, but. Well, it's also like a very like kind of horrific situation watching, yeah. you know, witnessing a naval battle, and then you know, just like no, you're 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 a child, you need to be in bed. Children could you know see horrific images and think they're okay, but then start having nightmares. But. Right. So that that line could definitely be taken one of two ways. Right. Hopefully, it's the not the the mean way. Suddenly, they see these men in black, followed by some soldiers that are carrying some sort of sarcophagus. The little girl says she needs to get her papa. It's his job to stop the Russians. And so we see these two men in black. And so, yeah, one of them is Rasputin. And he definitely looks like Alan Moore, too. Oh, it yeah, made me think sure. of like Alan Moore. Now I'm casting <laughs> people, right? A young Alan Moore. And then the blonde guy is with him. He has all these scars across his face. Oh, my God. I was going to say, I really did like the design of Rasputin here, but uh, you're right. He does look like Alan Moore. Yeah, more like the young. Young and old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They smash the door open to the entrance inside, and it leads them into the mountain, into some sort of temple. At the end of all these rows of pews is a statue. And these Russians in black, they take the statue, and they hand it off to the guys that have the sarcophagus. As they remove the statue, the Japanese military police try and stop them. Halt in the name of the emperor, one of them says, as they draw their guns. The blonde guy stops. Why are you stopping, Rasputin asks. They have guns, the blonde responds. And you have me. And we know he's a wizard because then he uses his power to make all their guns explode. That's pretty kind of horrific. And I don't think we've ever seen that uh, level of um, power from Rasputin before. But of course, all we really see him do is bring Hellboy to Earth and then die. So what 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 I know. Right, right. That takes that takes kind of a lot of effort though. Yeah. Wouldn't it? I would think so. <laughs> the Japanese police run off and outside they see the girl, Marioku, and they tell her to run. A sorcerer has your father, one of them says. So she mentioned her papa earlier, and then now we know that the guy inside is her dad. Inside Rasputin looks at the one police guy, and I guess he can't move, or is he, like, being held there or something? I'm wondering why he doesn't run off. Is he just, like, so shocked or whatever? No, I'm pretty sure Rasputin's, like, using his magic to hold him there. Okay. Maybe maybe he's staying there because he's super brave, and he's like, I'm going to stop this guy. I don't give a shit. I got a sword. Sure, yeah. I don't know. And he notices the guy's armband, and he calls him... Kenpetai. And I do want to mention this, the Kenpetai was a military police arm of the Imperial Japanese Army from 1881 to 1945. It was both a conventional military police and a secret police force. In Japanese-occupied territories, the Kenpetai also arrested or killed those who were suspected of being anti-Japanese. And their armbands did look like this, so... This is a historical accurate uniform of these military police. Rasputin tells the other guys... Rasputin the wizard. Yeah. He tells the other guys to go to the boat. And so I notice, like, it's kind of hard to see because they're carrying one sarcophagus initially. And then they get this one as well. But if you look at the first one that they have, 
it has like all these lines on it. It mm-hmm. has like these very deep lines on it. And then the one that they're stealing is like ornate and decorated with like a face and all this kind of stuff. Okay. I just want to point out that detail because it'll come back later. Here he says, you are not finished with me, I see. So he seems to be standing there of his own volition. Okay, yeah, maybe he's oh, yeah, just standing make there. A sense. Yeah. And the soldier unsheathes his sword. Rasputin asks him why he cares so much about the statue. The Chinese were here before you, that idol before them, thousands of years. It means nothing to your people. But the Kenpetai rushes towards him anyway with the sword. I will hand your head to the emperor, he says. No, but he should have something, Rasputin responds. Something that does have meaning for this island. Your spirit. And he very gruesomely, like, crushes the guy, the soldier. His bones are all jutting out or whatever through his skin. Yeah, it's really messed up. It kind of reminded me of Darkness Calls when Nimue crushes up the witches. Remember, she, like, deforms them. But it's not this graphic. Crushes him up like Tom Hanks crushing a beer can in the burbs. Yeah. (laughs) We've been watching that movie. Yeah, you like that one. I do like that one. So Rasputin takes the bloodied armband from the crushed soldier and he walks outside and he sees the girl. That is my father, she says. Just super calm, staring a wizard down with a bloody thing her dad used to wear. And he gives it to her. He says, it's yours now. I have my own souvenir. And so the little girl goes inside and she finds her dad all crushed up like a statue, Uh right? Now he's... He's the deformed, dead idol taking place of the statue that they stole. No that's thanks. horrific. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's just like he turned him like into the... like a like a block or something Ugh. of bones. Yeah, and then it's also pretty uh, just cold the way that he just like, oh, you can have your dad's bandana back. I got my own thing. Right. Yeah. You know. So we cut to 28 years later in Harbin, China, in the summer of 1932. Harbin is the capital of Heilongjiang, China's northernmost province. The city grew in the late 19th century with the influx of Russian engineers constructing the eastern leg of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. So this city historically has a lot of Russian influence. And we get this scene. We see this doorman. His name is Baolu. And he greets this couple. They're coming home from the theater. And he asks them how it was. The woman says it was a delight, but the man, who she calls the colonel, never seems to enjoy anything. And then so we see the man is that blonde guy from the earlier scene with all the scars across his face. Mm. He says the play was too bloodless for him. And in the distance, we see this woman watching them, and she has that Kempetai armband. Right, so we can guess that this is the little girl, right? It's 28 years later, and yeah. she looks pretty pissed off, right? So then now we get another jump. We cut over to Hong Kong, and we get this cool dapper guy, right? Um, he's getting his shoes shined, and like, is he English? In the shoe yeah, is he English though? Because he says chap yeah. and gov and stuff like that. Well, I thought yeah, that was interesting. Definitely, that's a British, those are British things to say. Also, uh, Hong Kong ended up becoming a British colony for, for decades. So. Uh, yeah. But the way that Mindy Lee draws him, he does look like he is of Asian descent. So I was wondering if there's there's uh there's British peeps that yeah, are of Asian yeah. descent. They're I British. thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. kind of like how they did Daimyo in the new Hellboy movie, in yeah. the latest Hellboy movie. He kind of had that accent as well, or that kind of. It made me think of that. He's he's British, even though he 
has his parents are whatever. So it's one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that the this writer is also going to great lengths to let us know that they are British. Right. Yeah. <laughs> with the with the gov and the chap. Yeah, just the way that he talks. And as he's leaving, we've got this guy in a brown suit behind him, and he pushes this guy over. He's being tracked by these two goons, and he seems to know it, right? So he, like, pushes this guy over to distract them, and then they have chase. There's an action beat as he's escaping these guys. They're, like, shooting at him and stuff through the streets. They lose him around a corner, and then they see his shoes because he was just getting those shined. But he's disguised as a rickshaw driver. They distract the guy, and then they he's able to shoot them. And then he pays the rickshaw driver for letting him use his hat as a disguise. Anything to defeat the Japanese, the driver says. So during this time, uh, Japan had invaded parts of China, and they were invading more parts of China. So there was that kind of sentiment of like, we don't want these people here. Uh, yeah, because the Japanese did incredibly horrible things to the Chinese people. Real there. bad. And so he's met with that guy in the brown suit again. He calls him Officer Hao. And so at first I thought the brown, the guy in the brown suit was one of the goons, but really that was like one of his, his fellow officer, and he just pushed him over to distract those other guys. And Officer Hao calls this guy, the dapper guy, Agent Dai. Dai tells Hao that he led those Japanese agents to him. He tells him that he's blown the cover of the Juntong's main operative in Hong Kong. So I guess that's who Dai works for. The Kong is also known as the National Bureau of Investigation and Statistics, the military intelligence agency of the Republic of China before 1946. So he's kind of like China's BPRD, you know, during this time. Yeah. I like how he says... Uh... You, I see you recovered from your run-in with the media, and it's like it's his way of saying, like, I shoved that paper in your face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. So in this next scene, Hao has led Agent Dai to Ping. This is modern-day Beijing, and he's getting briefed on this mission by this old guy, Major Zhao. Excuse me, but this guy looks like Walter Skinner. Oh, he does. Yeah, from the X-Files. He's kind Let's of like... Let's get Mitch Pelegi in here. Who would you cast? Who's your Walter Skinner <laughs> impression of a Chinese descent? Dai has been called in to meet some Russians, and in the middle of them talking, this woman comes in with tea, and Dai is like all charming her, right? Your timing couldn't be better. Major Zhao was just this moment about to bore me with business, he says. Is he charming her, or does he think he's being charming? Right, exactly. <laughs> It's kind of reminding me of like a whole uh, like early James Bond kind of thing, like where, you know, he the Zhao is him, he's Bond and she's supposed to be money penny kind of. That's what this scene. reminds Okay, me. yeah, I like that. <laughs> Dai tells the woman she looks like a Lang shining painting. Giuseppe Castiglione was also known as Lang Shining by the Chinese. He was an Italian Jesuit brother and missionary in China where he served as an artist in the imperial court for three emperors. He painted in a style that is a fusion of European and Chinese traditions, and Dai might be thinking of a painting called Chinese Lady, which is a painting by Castiglione of a beautiful Chinese woman sitting at a table. Cool. When the woman leaves, Zhao gives Dai the exposition. A city in Manchuria has all these white Russians living easy on the Chinese Yuan. But all this messed up stuff is happening to them. And so remember, I mentioned the Trans-Siberian Railroad brought all these Russians to the region during this time. I also noticed there's a black cat running across the street. 
So when he's like, perhaps not so easy because there's all this creepy stuff happening. And so I wonder if that black cat crossing the street is kind of a reference to that superstition. Zhao says, we have no reliable eyewitnesses of counts of how these brutal deaths happen. A drunken old beggar swears he saw a giant stone lion breathing smoke crush a man in its jaws. And several adolescents arrested on arson charges claim to have seen a large bull with a man's face stomping people beneath its hoofed feet. We get these awesome depictions of these monsters by Lee. As I said, nothing reliable except that each day for more than a week brought a new course. Understandably, the people in Harbin simply stopped going out past sunset. And so dies like monsters, really? Is this what you brought me in here for? Zhao says, This self-appointed curfew, it seems to have led to something that has grabbed Zhang Kai-shek's attention. And so, Zhang Kai-shek was the leader of the Republic of China during this time. It concerns a friend of his, a Colonel Suriv. And so that's the guy with all the scars across his face. Now we have a name for him. Well, we actually had a name. Uh, we have a first name because she called him... Um... Garvel, uh, when he said, like, you know, the play wasn't his, was too bloodless. For oh, him. okay. Yeah. Thank She's you for like, picking up on that detail. And Zhao says that Surev was a member of the Russian Akrana from 1900 until the October Revolution and then a fighter in the Russian Civil War. The Akrana were the secret police of the Russian czars created following the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881. For over 30 years, they infiltrated, monitored, censored, and detained groups seen as destabilizing the nation or threatening the autocratic power of the Russian Empire. And so Surev defected to Harbin with 20-some years of Russian intelligence, as well as many artifacts of cultural significance. And so this is why I pointed out that first sarcophagus that we saw in the story earlier, because we see it here among all the artifacts, and then they zoom in on it. So it's kind of like, this is going to mean something, mm -hmm. right? We know that they got yep. it from that island. Agent Dai asks why they weren't already surveilling this guy. It turns out they have been. The butler was really a captain named Ong, and earlier we saw that doorman Baolu greeting them. Well, he was Ong's officer. Baolu's routine was to stay on guard till midnight, where he would be replaced by a regular doorman since the captain was always on duty. But one night after Balu left, something weird happened. The next day, the mansion was empty, open, unsecured, and unguarded. No sign of a struggle, and all 16 members of the Surav family were gone. And so remember, we saw the woman watching them. You know what I mean? Outside. However, mm -hmm. they did find something in the dumbwaiter. Oh no, they found that dead, crushed up body. Remember, this is um, Miroku's dad, you know, yeah. all crushed and deformed from that first scene, and he's got the armband, right? So they find that there. And that sets us up for chapter two. We got to talk about this chapter two cover by Tanchi Zanyich, right? So creepy, those monkey, those, what are they, no face monkeys? The no mask. Creepy. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen those no mask monkeys. Um, haunting daimyo and associated with the crimson lotus in the lobster stories as well so we open up uh, this is a very cool scene i felt like we've been waiting for this in this Mignolaverse books for a while to just get this page right here so it's kind of cool the way this is phrased because we're continuing major zao's exposition to die but as we are getting the exposition we're seeing the no mass actually being put on the monkeys 
which I think is really interesting because I've always wondered, like, how the hell do those things get on there? Or how do they wear those things, you know? It also looks like the monkeys are frightened until the mask gets put on their face. And so it's like whatever's in the mask takes over the monkeys. It's like some sort of magic. It's definitely right? magic. For yeah. Sure. Also, the masks are on there with magic they don't follow right yeah i think that's really interesting i don't like how she's grabbing these monkeys though yeah that's not nice but then she pets it afterwards right but that's still that's not <laughs> nice to do that it's not nice so we continue major zhao's briefing to agent dai he tells him that he's flying to Yaichun. Yaichun means Pleasant Spring. It is located in the northwest Jiangxi province in china along a river surrounded by mountains Dai is to take the train to Harbin and look into Colonel Serv's disappearance. But Zhao says Serv is only part of it. There's a much larger picture here. So obviously the Crimson Lotus is filling into this larger picture. And I think we're kind of putting it together. She had something to do with the disappearance. Zhao tells Agent Dai that the doorman, Officer Baolu, will also meet him on the train. And so we pick up here, we see Baolu, he's boarding the train, and he's confronted by this woman selling flowers. Flowers, young man? Flowers for your young lady? Not now, grandmother, Baolu says. And we see Baolu, he finds Agent Dai, and he uses a code phrase to identify himself at the door of the train car. Certainty in uncertain times is admirable. I couldn't find a reference to that. Certainty in uncertain times has been used in a lot of different things, including religious sayings and all this kind of stuff, but I couldn't find this exact phrase, certainty in uncertain times is admirable. I thought that was just interesting little code phrase that he tells him it's probably just like you know like they use random code phrases that people wouldn't actually like you know don't actually you know they're not like sayings or anything well so no that way you just know. saying that it's interesting that's yeah like... yeah yeah you're absolutely right they wouldn't want to take something that's a popular phrase and use yeah. that right <laughs> yeah balu and Dai talk Balu says they have to be all secret like this because he needs a new cover identity he's still known as serve security team and Dai asks for the most recent info on Serev that Balu has. Balu says, Serev alerted us to a Japanese shipment of arms by train deep into the Chinese interior. They aim to extend a military presence outside of Manchuria. The colonel was waiting on specific dates for the shipment when he disappeared. And just then, they are confronted by a Japanese officer who recognizes Balu. And Dai, I like this moment, he's like trying to say that he's... An agent for the British American Tobacco Company. So that kind of goes along with that British, you know, I guess that's how he talks. So that's kind of giving us more insight to that. But the officer doesn't buy it. He's about to shoot die, And then suddenly the woman selling flowers comes in again and she interrupts them. Flowers, blossom for your wives, for your lady friends. Woman, be gone, the Japanese officer says. Can't you see I'm an officer for the Empire? Officers have sweethearts, yes, she asks. You must smell these beauties. They are intoxicating. And so she rips off the cloth, and she's the woman who was bringing the tea ah. earlier, but she's a secret agent. And so she kicks the guy, and then Balu's able to clock him in the face. Yeah, it's a good thing that she was on the train, because uh, their whole, like, clandestine to kind of sort of, you know, fly the plane, get on this train, use the secret code. And they get spotted in five seconds. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think that's like, I heard your voice through the door. I think that's literally why she's there, because yeah. she knows all this. That it's yeah. ridiculous. So Dai's like, you're the secretary, right? I mean, obviously she's not, no, right? She just yeah. fought this guy. And she introduces herself as Agent Shengli. 
This is one of the six officers on the train, and if any see you here, your cover's gone as well, she tells Balu and Dai. And Dai asks Balu to remove this Japanese officer, and Shangli tells Dai to go up through the roof of the train. It's the quickest way to get him out of sight. And he's like, through the window, it only opens from the bottom. I'm athletic, of course, but my arms are only so long. And so Balu gets the Japanese officer and throws him through the side of the train car. I like how he kind of like, uh, yeah, he kind of cleans off his hands or whatever. He kind of does that thing after he throws him through. That should make it easier for you, Shengli says. Very much, yes, although I wish you had kept his gun, Dai says. A man can't have too much firepower in China these days. So Shengli and Baolu go to look for the other Japanese officers on the train. And I love this because they just start running for it. They're not like going to stealthily try and get these guys. They're just going to go for it. They just run to start battling these these Japanese officers, which I think is like super badass. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So the Japanese officers start firing on them as soon as they see them running towards them. And Shengli's like, I suppose Dai was right about that gun, right? They should have kept that. Up on top of the train car, we see Dai up there and he's like, how am I supposed to keep my suit clean up here? Because <laughs> he's got like a white suit. <laughs> anyway. Maybe don't wear a white suit when you're being an undercover agent. Then the Japanese officers are up there too. I, I guess there's three down in the car and then there's two on top. And so they start going after Dai up there. The Japanese officers inside the car are firing on Balu and Shengli. And one of them is like, save your ammunition. The cowards clearly are without weapons. And then he gets stabbed in the neck by a dart. How are they cowards if they don't have weapons? I mean, they're attacking without a weapons. That's right. fucking brave to me. <laughs> and so one of them's like, oh, poison. Rush them before they can throw another one. Up on top of the train car, we see Dai. And so I, I like this. This is a classic. Whenever you have a train scene where someone's on top of the train, you got to have this moment where there's like going through a tunnel and you got to duck under it and stuff like that. Also, it is impossible to stand up on top of a moving train, but that's fine. <laughs> so Dai ducks down. He's shooting at the Japanese officers. I think he gets one of them, but there's still another one after him. Inside the train car, the lights go out, and Balu and Shengli appear to have vanished. And then suddenly, Shengli appears from behind, and she, like, slits this dude's throat. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and Balu's about to take out this other guy as well. And then on top of the train car, the Japanese officer up there, he can't find Dai. And then Dai pops up from behind him and he pulls him down. He's got to say from, a funny quip. Yeah, he says, good journey to you, Hirohito. So Hirohito was the emperor of Japan during this time. So that's what that reference is. And good journey. Uh, I'm sorry, but I, I have to go on a tangent here because... Um, it always makes me think of the Masters of the Universe movie. Yeah. I used to love that movie. <laughs> and me and my brother would always say good journey to each yeah. other because that's what they say. They're like, we don't say goodbye. We say good journey or whatever. And so, and they do like a little hand motion. So I always think of that whenever I see that phrase. Don't say goodbye. Say good journey. You, get, you know, right before that happens, you know, the guy, the Japanese officer says something like, all right, Nanking sheep. Uh, Nanking refers to the uh, city of Nanking. That's also known as the Forgotten Holocaust. There's a uh, wonderful book that's about the whole thing called The Rape of Nanking. If you're interested in learning more about the horrific, horrendous things the Japanese people did to China during the World War II times. Wow. Thank you for that, Aubrey. I totally missed that. Good assist there. Finally, they arrive in Harbin. 
And I believe this is the Harbin Railway Station. Or maybe it used to look like this. I, I couldn't find this building. I googled Harbin. Uh, just Google Harbin, China. It is amazing there. Because it has the Russian influence, think of it like St. Petersburg, but in China. They have all these like really interesting buildings. And at night, they're all like neon colored and all this kind of stuff is really amazing. I was like, man, I want to go visit there. Um, and so I believe that this might be what the railway station used to look like. It looks totally different now. I kind of found an old picture that kind of looked like this, but I couldn't find this exact building. So if you know what this building is, where they're pulling up here, um, let me know. And we get this scene where Shangli and Dai... They're kind of disguised as a couple on their honeymoon. And so they're like, oh, you're going to love it here. You know, but then they're whispering to each other. And I like this. We talk about Clem Robbins, you know, when he does that tiny script. So that yeah. way you can tell that they're whispering. Also, this is a oh, yeah. just a terrible outfit. Well, <laughs> well it's of the time, right? It's of the time. It's still terrible. And they're in disguise, too. There was that moment where on top of the train car, Die kind of ducked down between the two and then he got the guy from behind. And so here, Shangli asked him, she was like, oh, do you know the dark arts? How are you able to do that? And he's like, what? Don't be silly. I use the dark tunnel. I drop between the cars. And then I got him, you know, no mystery about it. But I thought that was interesting that she mentions the dark arts. And he's like, oh, that's silly stuff. You know what I mean? But she clearly knows more about the magical side of things. And Dai says he's, he's confused why they didn't stop the train with all that mayhem. Chinese engineers don't care about killing Japanese occupation officers, she tells Dai. Though I imagine if they'd known about this, they might have stopped. And we see the big hole in the side of the train car where Balu threw that one officer out. Uh, yeah, I like, I like that three people standing there looking at that hole going, what the fuck yeah. happened here? <laughs> and Dai says, well, with all these eyes of the Empire about... I should hope Balu isn't going to disembark here. And she says, of course not. We have our honeymoon cover, but Balu was outed some time ago. He exited the train before it arrived in Harbin. And so we see that. We see Balu gain off the train, and he's going to enter the city after nightfall. While we stay at the Hotel Modern, Balu will make his way to alternate lodgings. We will all rendezvous in the morning. And so the modern hotel Harbin, this was founded in 1906, and it's still there. You could stay there um, if you ever visit. It's located in the central part of China's famous historical and cultural street, the Central Pedestrian Street, with a beautiful scenery of the Shangyua River, Sun Island, and Ice World in the north. So I actually looked this up, and this is where I saw all those pictures of Harbin and the Ice Lantern Garden Party. All this stuff looks so awesome. Anyway, as we see Balu... He's entering his alternate lodgings. The Nomass Monkey is watching him. So we get this scene where the Nomass Monkey is climbing the tree and it, it gets outside of Balu's window and it's making that chitter sound. I think we've seen it make that chitter sound in other stories that have featured the monkeys. And so Balu's like, damn squirrel, they should poison a lot. And he's like, wait a minute, that's no squirrel. What creature makes such noises? And then this giant monster bursts through the window. And this thing, how, how do you describe this monster? Horrible. It, it's like it has two mouths, one open on the bottom of its head and one open on the top of its head. Yeah, it's kind of like the head could be upside down or right side. Like, you don't really know which way the head is. It's really interesting design. I like that. How it's kind of like it's got teeth on both sides and two mouths. 
two tongues. It's yeah. Or I mean, it, is this what the the no mask monkey just kind of mutated into? No, no. I think this is something separate. Um, okay. we'll, we'll see in the next scene. I think maybe the no mask monkey led it there or something. But amazing design on this, and Lee does a great splash page featuring this thing. Great colors by Madsen as well. I don't know if we've shouted out Michelle Madsen, but the book is seamless. I mean, it flows right along with all the other books. Really awesome work there too. So we cut over to the Crimson Lotus and she's like camped out among all these trees. She's got like a wagon and a horse there and she's speaking some mystical language. I like how this is obviously different from the frog language. You know, they make it a point to be like, this is some unknown thing that we don't know about, but it's not the frog language. It's something else. And it looks like she's throwing some ingredients into a pot. So I don't know if she's doing something with a spell or something like that. She hears the no mass monkey coming and she's like, little one, yes, come by the fire. It's cold for a summer night, almost as cold as it was in Maishan so long ago. And your friend, is she cold too? And then we see the monster. Ugh, so creepy. Yeah, and so we see that thing come up too. She brings me a gift, and it's Balu's head. Like it bit its head off. And Crimson Lotus says, You, you thought you escaped peril, Agent Balu, scurrying away that night before I could meet you. So now we know that she's responsible for the disappearance of the Surv family. And why? Why did you leave Colonel Surv's house so early? To see a young lady, perhaps? You've seen someone, haven't you? And she pulls his eye out of his socket. Horrible. She says some more of her mystical language. You have no secrets anymore, Balu. Not from me. I know where you've been. And she throws the eyeball into her cauldron. All this kind of smoke starts to come up. Now show me what you've seen. Show me who you've seen, she says. And inside the cauldron, she sees Agent Die. Yeah, and so that's where we finish this issue. And all of this, it kind of reminded me of, remember in Lobster Johnson, The Burning Hand, Kamala, they killed Massimo, and then she drug out all his guts and all this stuff, and then she saw a vision of the Lobster's team and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of made me think, uh, like, yeah. this is maybe the same kind of magic that Kamala was doing. Because I remember there was, like, a big plume of smoke and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, and so that's where we're going to end off on this series. And so I, I, I like this because... We're all set up now. We know all the characters. We kind of are set up with what the Crimson Lotus's agenda is. And we still have more mysteries to uncover, but we're all kind of like ready for the action to push us through the next three issues. So I'm really excited to get to that for our next episode. So we've had, we have a pretty good team on here, a new team too. We, we've had Mindy Lee for the first time, Michelle Madsen. What'd you guys think of these first two issues of this story? That was beautiful. I mean, uh, the artwork was like, it was like stunning. And like, I didn't know uh, that she came from an animation background, but I mean, you can definitely tell that it's got that kind of animation quality to it. I thought it, you know, it flowed very well and the colors, um, Honestly, I, I, I didn't notice that it wasn't um, Dave Stewart not doing the color. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it, it fits perfectly in the world that we've been reading. Yeah, no, I uh, when I started reading it, I was like, this looks like animation. So it's not surprising at all that she has background animation. And like, like Aubrey said, I think the colors are, are great. So it's good stuff. And so, yeah, there's a lot of action. Some of it is a little too grotesque. For my oh, taste, okay. but of course it's 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 there to tell a story, and that's fine. I'll just I I pretend I do not see it. Yeah, that's fine. I, I love having John Arcudi back. You know, he's such a great writer. 
he does a really great job with the characters and giving them personality and stuff like that. And so I'm really glad to have him on for his final story in the Mignolaverse. It's nice that they went ahead and hired some ladies. Yeah, for really. Oh, yeah. Re- I mean, for real, yeah, represent, right? There's so many there's so many women who can do these things and they're like, "Hey, I guess we should hire some of them." So, that's good. You know, and and we we talked about it on a previous episode like who makes that determination? You know, I wonder if that's John Arcudi going, you know, let's let's do a whole new team on here. You right. know, let's have these artists. So I, I wonder who is responsible for bringing these people on board. But they definitely make a great book. Yeah, it's good. And I'm excited to get to the next three issues next week. Me too. I mean, it was hard to stop Like when I was reading this. I was like, wait, I got to stop here? Yeah. Damn you, damn you John, <laughs> you cruel master. <laughs> well, you know, that's um that, that's Mark Tweedell too because he kind of splits up the episodes for me. And I think he's got to try and find... A good stopping point. A good comic series will keep you wanting more, right? So a a little shorter episode than normal this week, but I think if we tried to read all five issues, the episode would be really long, so we got to have a stopping point somewhere. I'm excited to get to the rest of the issues, and now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody, share us your thoughts on The Crimson Lotus. You can send us a Hey You Damn Guys at HellboyBookClub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find all of our resources on our Facebook About section and our Podbean webpage. As always, a special thank you to the Side Street Steppers for providing the music for us today. It's wonderful. We love you guys. As always, a thanks to Mark Tweedell for helping John with the reading order. And thank you, John, for making us sound like we're amazing. You are amazing, Aubrey. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we're continuing the Crimson Lotus issues three through five. So you know what to do. Don't put away your back issues just yet, or your trades, or your Omni, or your digital. And continue the story with us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. That, that was one of the smoothest. Yeah, that was cute. That, that was one of the smoothest outros you've ever done. That was fantastic, Aubrey. <laughs> oh, thank you. You've gotten really good at that. <laughs> thank you so much for listening, everybody. And make sure to support our fundraiser. Look for the details on that on our social media. I'm John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, by all means, look there. (laughs) 